0: What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And then the second reading is just over the page, and it's Luke chapter 2, 41 to 52. festival of the Passover. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good evening, it's great to be here with you uh, to open the scriptures. My name is Rowan, uh, I am down at the garrison usually, but a delight to be here. Happy New Year. One of my uh, bands that I like to enjoy uh, is The Eels, Much show my age a little bit. The lead singer of The Eels uh, sings a song called Things Grandchildren Should Know. It's from his 2005 album, hauntingly beautiful album, Blinking Lights and Other Revelations. And he says this as he kicks off. I go to bed real early. Everybody thinks it's strange. I get up early in the morning. And no matter how disappointed I was in the day before, it feels new. I don't know about you, but at New Year, that's kind of the feeling that I get. It's kind of got that fresh feeling. It's like, you know, that feeling of popping a new batch of tennis balls, the smell that comes with it. It's like the creasing of the first page of a new novel. kind of builds anticipation. It's like putting on a new pair of socks. There's something fresh about it, and there's something you know, that opens the heart wide in thinking about the prospects, the opportunities, what is ahead of us. And after 38 new years, you probably think I should be more bitter, but I'm a sucker and sentimental. And so I enjoy the new year and all that it throws open before you. And and one of the questions we often ask, isn't it, around new year uh, is, well, who, who do I want to be this year? What kind of person do I want to be? And usually then, that will determine what kinds of things I will choose to do. If I want to be healthy this year, well, that will determine the certain behaviours that I will exercise restraint in or exercise in. Uh, as you can see, the, the who, who I want to be, drives the what, what I do. And so, as we think about this passage today, I just want you to think about that. Who, who do you want to be this year? Question of identity. Who do you want to be? And, and what do you want to do? And the first will, will drive uh, the ladder. And in today's passage, we get, we get Jesus' first recorded words. It's quite striking to think about, actually. So, this is Jesus as a 12 year old. And so, we've moved from the, the narrative, birth narratives, and then we, we kind of jump straight into this chapter, in chapter 2. And we see Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, and he he speaks his first words in the Gospels. And in what he speaks today, we actually see him describe who he is and, and what he has come to do. His identity drives what he does, what he has come to do. And the beauty of that, as we'll see, is that we get caught up in that picture, and it's a liberating, energizing, a happy and wonderful thing. So we're gonna go through the story initially, you'll see in the outline there, then we'll see the significance of it. And then I was running out of steam with my S's, so I have suggestions at the end, but really it's implications. If you can find a different word started with S for me later, you can let me know. But let's begin with with the story. Uh, It's a story that was read to us from Luke chapter two. As I said, it's a story of transition, so we've just had all the birth narratives where we're, we're reflecting on the arrival of, of Jesus' coming, that's what Advent celebrates, uh, and, and the marvellous thing that that has, uh, has been and the wonder that that instils in others. And here we're going quickly to a new scene before we jump to Jesus' ministry as, as an adult. And so it's a unique window. The setting is uh, on, on, on Path to Jerusalem, Jesus and his family are heading for the Passover feast in Jerusalem. This would have been a, a common festival that, that many went to, an annual pilgrimage, uh, a round trip from Nazareth of around 80 miles. And they would have made that, that journey with an extended party of people, relatives and friends, so it was like a caravan of people going to and fro to celebrate this festival together. And so even there, you can, you can deduce some little things as we begin our time together. You can deduce uh, deduce that that Mary and Joseph are are faithful, in the sense that they're faithful in observing the customs. Uh, They are attending this festival. What's striking is, usually it's a male that attends, but here Mary attends as well. So it it speaks of her piety, demonstrates that. But it also shows, as we read through the account, that that Jesus has been instructed as well, as he engages with those in the temple, he demonstrates a maturity. He wouldn't have yet received formal instruction in the temple, that happened at age 13. But he seems to demonstrate an understanding which presumably part of that picture is that his parents have have taught him faithfully. All this to say is he's he's very much the average 12-year-old Jewish boy. It's a very human picture here that we get. In verse 52, we even see more of that, that human language about Jesus. It says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus, the, the, the boy, was experiencing normal human growth. He, he matured intellectually. We're told that he grew in wisdom over time. He grew physically. It says that he grew in stature. He experienced various stages of, of growth. He grew spiritually, in terms of being in favour with God. More on that later. And finally, he grew socially, in favour with man. He developed friendships. And as he grew older, he amazed people by his understanding and what he taught. So it's a very kind of human picture that we see. Jesus is a 12-year-old Jewish boy in Jerusalem for this story. Now, in verses 43 to 45, we we get the problem in the story. The problem is Mary and Joseph are on their return journey with their, their caravan of people and they assume Jesus' presence and they don't notice his absence. We have some friends, that have seven kids. I remember they came over one time with our lot. That made an army of children and we, we all headed to the park and we had one of those doors that when you pull close it, it locks it internally so you can't get out. So off we all went to the park. The assumption was that everyone was with us. The reality was someone was absent, and we didn't realise until a little later on. It took us a little while to work it out. There was no distress upon return. It was the eldest of the seven, and she said it happens all the time. So she wasn't too cranky about it. But you can see in this text that there's no sense in this text that, that Mary and Joseph are being negligent here. It's understandable. That would that Jesus was amongst a broader party. But upon the recognition of his absence, evidently the anxiety levels started to rise. And so they return, like attentive parents, to find Jesus. They return to Jerusalem, which might have been a day's journey, verse 45, to look for him. And after three days, we're told, that they found him in the temple courts we just need to feel that for a moment. Can you imagine the, the anxiety that a parent must feel? We, we kind of get stressed, don't we, when we lose our phone for about three hours, but, you know, a child for three days. And so, after three days, verse 46, they find him there in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. This is a kind of natural teaching method in the temple, a didactic question and answer. And people are amazed at Jesus' understanding and his answers. Remember, he hasn't received any formal instruction yet. And so the text tells us that they're amazed. And his parents, upon arriving, are amazed also. You can imagine a sense in which they're proud as they see their son answering questions and contending. But then you can imagine very quickly that turns from proud to peeved because where has he been these last three days? And Mary blurt[s] out, understandably, though most likely from a place of both concern mixed with guilt. You know, wh- why have you treated us like this? I don't know. As you as you read the text, it's it's you kind of can you can sympathise with Mary here. It seems negligent on the part of. This boy, Jesus, to have not informed or told. And on face value, it can seem as if, you know, Jesus is being inconsistent here, disobedient even, in the wrong. On face value, we want to, we want to say that. But it's, it raises a question for us, doesn't it, in the text? You know, were Jesus' actions wrong here? Was he disobedient? Well, in Hebrews 4, it tells us that Jesus was human in every respect, except without sin, Later, Jesus would say something about himself like that in John 8. So, so there's a sense in which we must say, no, he, what he did wasn't wrong or disobedient. But how, how can we hold this together? Well, I think theology can help us here, but we must remember as we think about the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, you know, it's unique and beyond us to completely comprehend. But in Jesus' at At Advent, what we celebrate is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, one person, becomes a man. He takes upon himself a human nature. So Jesus is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. So this means that Jesus was fully divine and fully human. And he experienced humanity as as we do. And we're told, as we've seen in verse 52, that he developed as, as we do also. So as we read this account, we need to remember that Jesus was a 12-year-old boy, yet a 12-year-old without sin. One of the best pieces of parenting advice I've received is don't discipline kids for being kids. They told me kids get mesmerised, absorbed, they get excited and giddy, they're being kids. You don't discipline kids for being kids, And so, in a sense, as we read this, we need to remember that Jesus was a 12-year-old boy, mesmerized and absorbed. One commentator writes this, Jesus was, was capable of unknowingly causing his parents distress, but as a sinless being, he was incapable of knowingly doing it. Here, Jesus unknowingly brought anxiety to Joseph and Mary. His actions... Brought distress to Mary, perplexity and pain, but they weren't wrong, as it were. And as we'll see, this won't be the first time that Jesus' actions and his words will bring pain to Mary. In part, it's almost a fulfillment of that prophecy we read a few weeks ago in Samuel, where, where, where of Jesus it says, A sword will, to Mary, a, a sword will pierce your own soul too. And so as we read this story, Jesus then, after being questioned by Mary, his response is, is, is quite the opposite. He seems quite calm in his response. Look at verse 49. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And again, as, as you read this text, you can kind of think, this seems seems a little calm, a bit, you know, cold. Doesn't it? You know, today it might prompt a is this boy okay kind of kind of question. But we'll see here that this statement that Jesus makes, these these questions that Jesus asks, is a statement that Jesus makes of deep significance. But we'll get on to address that in a moment. So Jesus responds, saying he had to be in his father's house. And then we see that Mary and Joseph don't fully understand his words, verse 50, and then later. We see, though, that she will come back to understand this episode and she will treasure it in her heart. And then the account closed in verse 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. That's the story that we're, we're reading. But well, what's the significance of it? And the significance is, it is, is there in verse 49, particularly. It's Jesus' words, his response, which are actually a statement about himself. And this is the thing that's worth marvelling at. Remember, these are Jesus' first recorded words. In verse 49, he says, Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my Father's house? As you read the Gospels, you, you often see that, don't you, true to form? Jesus doesn't answer the question, but he kind of asks another question. But in doing so, he's making a statement about who he is and what he has come to do. It's a statement about his identity but also his task, his mission, who he is and what he has come to do. The who here drives the what he does. And firstly we see it's, it's a statement about who he is, a statement about his identity. Jesus' calm response here is, is unsettling. I don't know how you are with customer service, but I'm the kind of classical passive-aggressive guy. So I've got Super high expectations, Judicial, judicially I'm harsh, but when it comes to personal confrontation, I'm a complete coward. So I'm that guy who will never send back a coffee, never send back a meal, and you know when they hold up the mirror after the haircut, when they've butchered your head, and they said, does it look good? And you go, oh yeah, looks great. I'm that guy, whereas my wife, on the other hand, she's not like that, she has right expectations, and she's quite generous, actually. Uh, But she's principled and assertive and uh, there are interactions in customer service situations where I want the ground to open up and swallow me. We went to the movies the other night. It was one of those evenings. But is she honest? Absolutely. Is it a more mature response? Probably. But boy, oh boy. And it's like that when you read the gospel sometimes, isn't it? You see Jesus' interaction with his disciples or here with his mum and you're kind of like, Oh, kind of grates on you. He speaks calm truth to her. And it may not be what she wanted to hear, but at this point, it's what she needed to hear. And Jesus says something of his identity. Mary tells him, your father and I have been searching for you. And Jesus turns around and says, you know, her point is, you should be with us at home. And Jesus' reply is, you should know that I had to be in my father's house. He reminds her of a prior relationship, a prior family, one of a, of a son to a father. I should be in my father's house. So this is a statement of identity for Jesus. He's saying that I am the son of a father. Jesus is God's son before anything else, before anything was. And what you see, actually, in the next chapter is a, is a visual of this loving relationship. You see at Jesus' baptism, as he enters the waters... We're told that the heavens open, a dove of the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And that's a picture of the eternal life of God. The Father has always loved his Son in the bond or, or love of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus here expresses his identity. He is the Father's Son. And the son's love and desire is for the father. And he expresses that here in his saying who he is and what he has come to do. So Jesus, in his response to Mary, communicates that this relationship has priority over all others. Not at the exclusion of others or neglect of others, but it's got precedence over them. His response tells us about his identity, who he is. But it also tells us, what he has come to do, his task. At Advent, we, we celebrate Jesus' coming, that Jesus came as a baby. And in the, in the rest of this statement, Jesus' responds to Mary, he gives a scope into the reason for his coming. Verse 49, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And that phrase, I had to be there, is also tra- translated in other um, versions as it is, it is necessary. And actually, if you, you pick up that phrase throughout Luke's Gospel, it's always attached to what Jesus has come to do when he speaks about his future death and resurrection. It's, it's necessary that I must come to do this. And on the road to Emmaus, as the resurrected Jesus kind of speaks about how the scriptures speak of him, it, it's necessary that the Messiah must suffer. So it's a picture of what he has come to do. It's a word that describes his mission. But what does it mean that he had to be in his Father's house? Well, in one sense, because Jesus loves the Father, he longs for his presence, and that's that's where the temple comes into the picture. It's where he's he's instructed, it's where his promises are heard. However, most commentators agree that it's another way of saying he is about what the Father desires. He's committed to the mission that God has sent him to do. And this is picked up in the King James translation. For instance, it translates it like this. I must be about my father's business. And it's an interpretive call there, but it's not a bad one. He's come to do the father's business. Who he is, is driving what he has come to do. His father's task for him, Jesus is saying to Mary, is the most important thing. And his parents need to understand this. So The question is, well, what is the father's business? Luke's Gospel spends the time filling this out for us, but there's this striking parallel in Luke 24. In Luke 24, uh, it's set on the road to Emmaus. Two followers of Jesus are returning toward Jerusalem, and they're sharing with a stranger who is actually the resurrected Jesus their anguish over the events of the last three days since Jesus' death. And finally, Jesus reveals himself to them, And he explains what had to happen, what was necessary. He said, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's a similar language of what Jesus had come to do. As we think about these two stories, there's, there's striking similarities. In both situations, you've got a couple coming back to Jerusalem... And Jesus, speaking about his identity, who he is, and what he has come to do. Here, who is he? He's the Messiah. And that determined what he had come to do. To suffer and rise from the dead. To go to the cross. This was the Father's business. That that is what Jesus the man had come to do. So Jesus, in his reply to Mary, in verse 49, he is stating who he is. He's the Father's son. The Father's beloved son, and what he has come to do, the Father's business. He's come to die for humanity so that there can be forgiveness of sins. That picture is filled out for us in the gospel. Now, this is hard for Mary to understand. We see that in verse 50. And that is understandable because they don't have the full picture yet. And if we're honest, many today wrestle with these same claims, who Jesus says he is and what he has come to do. Likely some of us here struggle with those claims. But that is the significance of this passage, verse 49. It declares who Jesus is. He is the Father's beloved Son, and what he has come to do. He's come to do the Father's business, which is the road to the cross. Well, finally, what impact does that then make for us as we consider this? I don't know how you think about the new year, As we said, it's often a moment to to take stock and to reflect. I don't know what your last year was like, 2019. There might be moments that you celebrated, achievements and milestones, but there will also be wounds that we nurse, sadnesses, regrets and disappointments, perhaps for some of us, deep ones. How does who Jesus is and, and what he has come to do make a difference as we think about the new year? Well, Jesus was the apple of God's eye. He was the Father's beloved son. He was the object of the Father's love. It's a picture you see painted, particularly in the Gospel of John. But he was about the Father's business. And the beauty here is that this task of the Father's business was to draw us into that family relationship with Jesus himself and the Father. He drew us into his family by adoption. Jesus was the son of God who came so that those who put their trust in him could also become sons and daughters of God. John 1.12 says, To all those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In our Galatians reading earlier, Paul says that we are adopted as part of God's family when we put our trust in Christ, what is true of Jesus becomes, by nature of his work for us, ours. We become, in Jesus, the apple of God's eye. What is true of him becomes true of us. A few years ago, we had a, um, a Christmas in July party. It was when we lived in, in Newtown when we were at Bible college, so... Um, and I'd invited a friend, and he didn't turn up, and I was a bit annoyed by that. I thought, you know, typical millennial, not showing up. Fear of missing out, something else came up that was better. What could be better than my party? But anyway, halfway through the evening with all our guests there, I see this kind of figure walk past the window, and then there was a knock at the door. And I opened the door to see my friend dressed as Santa Claus in the full kit, with a, with a bag of goodies. And so persuasive was this outfit that, you know, my friends are looking at me like, who is this guy? Do you know him? You know, is he safe? this is new town? Uh, and I was kind I don't know. But anyway, came in, gave out the gifts, and, uh, you know, the identity was disclosed. But then what we did afterwards is, uh, you know, we took a walk down King Street. And, uh, you know, he was clothed in someone else's, you know, outfit. And let's just say on a Friday night in Newtown, people love Santa, as you can imagine. And so the, the confidence that that instilled in my friend, just walking down the street, high-fiving, and it was all kinds of things. And in a similar way, it's, it's this beautiful, you know, insufficient, but beautiful picture of what it is when we're clothed in Christ, in the sense that when we're connected To Christ, through his work, by the Spirit, we become clothed in him, the language Paul uses, so that what is true of him becomes true of us. And that instills within us great uh, wonder, dignity, acceptance, love, not based on anything that we did. Actually, he had to come because of what we did. But it's based on, on the merits of another, being clothed in someone else's outfit a new identity that we are given. This is, this is who we are, or rather, whose we are. This means that no success, no failure, can change God's love for you. This is unconditional. This is who we are. Perhaps you've never heard that. Or perhaps you've forgotten that. That's the wonderful news of, of tonight's passage. What's beautiful as we go on to read the Gospels is that we are called sons and daughters and we're called to address God in the most intimate of fashions. In the Lord's Prayer, we're, we're commanded to call God our Father. In the, the language of Galatians, we, we get to call him Abba Father, in the most intimate of terms. And so as we head into this new year, as we wake up tomorrow, this is a place from which we do it. We do it from complete acceptance and an outrageous love. What is true of Jesus is true of you as you wake up tomorrow morning. Outrageous love, acceptance, that fresh feeling, a happy new year. But this new identity is also to take priority for us. Whose you are means that this relationship has to become also for us the defining one the one that has priority over all others. Again, not to the exclusion or the neglect of others, but it's precedence over them. Who, who we are will shape what we do. We will shape what we think our life is for. So as we think about 2020, do your, do your plans this year align with who you are in Christ? Do they align with Jesus how does the apple of Jesus' eye, his bride, the church, feature in those plans? Is it a place of priority for you as it is for him? Are your priorities aligned with his, which is, which is your holiness? Are there areas of growth this year that we need to consider? There's much to mine here in meaningful conversations with others, and I encourage you to take the time to do it. And finally, this passage closes with these words. We've looked at them before in verse 52, Speaking of Jesus, it says, He grew in favor with God and man. Jesus was the Father's beloved Son. Yet we are told in the Gospels that the Son pleased the Father in what he did. We see that time and time again in the Gospel that Jesus' faithfulness in fulfilling what he had come to do as a man brought God, the Father, pleasure and delight. There's a sense in which, you know, an analogy could be like as a parent, you know, when you have a child and you hold it in your arms for the first time, there's a sense in which you're overwhelmed with this sense of, of love and delight. Yet as a child grows, you know, we might not think it's possible to love them more at that moment, but as a child grows, there's a sense in which we delight and, and, and love when they grow and develop in their character and are formed in a certain way. Their identity hasn't changed. They're, they're, they're loved, but there's great pleasure and delight for a parent as they see their child grow and obey. And as similar is for us in Christ. Our identity is not changed. Our, our, our position of being loved in Christ is secure. We're the beloved in Him. But as we obey, as we live as we prioritise and and, and change and grow more like Jesus, there's a real sense in which God takes pleasure and delight in that. We are to want to please God. And and the Scriptures even speak in a way that we we can please God. In Romans 12.1, it says, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Later in Philippians, Paul describes them giving gifts out of love for Christ, and he describes them as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And so, as the apple of God's eye in Christ, some questions for us to think through are is, well, how can we, in terms of our identity, how can we delight or bask in, in his love more this year? How can we grow more this year? How can we know him more this year? But also. How can I please him more this year? Become more likely like him. Again, much to mine here in meaningful conversation with others, but it's because let's ask the Spirit to help change us into his likeness. Join with me. We'll be praying a prayer of St. Augustine. Eternal God, the light of our minds that know you, the joy of the hearts that love you and the strength of the wills that serve you. Grant us to know you, so to love you, that we may truly serve you, whose service is perfect freedom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.